You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. This is the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has thousands upon thousands of retail stores all over the United States. So if you have any questions about batteries, whether they're small batteries or big batteries for a vehicle, stop into your local Interstate Battery retail store, talk with a specialist, or for more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Vortex Optics. And we got a pretty interesting episode today. Now, when you think turkey hunting, right, a majority of us probably think of your standard eastern bird. Uh, We may even talk about some western hunting like some Rios and some Merriams. But this episode, we're going to be talking with Dylan Dowson. And Dylan had the ability to hunt turkeys at about 9,000 feet out in New Mexico, I believe it was. And uh, I wanted to get him on because that's a unique place to hunt turkeys at that high of an elevation. And uh, he shares the story uh, with us today. The cool thing about all this, this was in conjunction with a project that the National Wild Turkey Federation was doing to restore habitat for turkeys up in the mountains. So there's that aspect of it too. And I'm going to try to get uh, one of the guys, uh, we we talk about him in this episode, but I'm going to try to get the guy who managed that project on this podcast as well as kind of a secondary story to to this story. So uh, pretty, pretty cool. Uh, It's definitely hunting a a similar species in a different environment is is awesome. Like for whitetails uh, specifically, I want to go out west and hunt whitetails like in Montana or Wyoming. I want to uh, go hunt mule deer in South Dakota, but I also want to hunt mule deer in Colorado at about 12,000 feet, right? So I, I want to experience the same animals in different environments. And uh, that's what this podcast is about today, man. So Dylan kind of dropped some knowledge bombs on us as far as um, his hunt the project and a whole bunch of other little cool stories inside and out that had to deal with the NWTF project and his hunt. So stay tuned for that, but I'm underprepared here. What do I have to do for a commercial today? Commercial, commercial vortex optics. All right. So you guys have heard me talk about vortex an absolutely awesome company that makes above average, like well above average, a premium, Optics, binoculars, range finders, rifle scopes, uh, spotting scopes, and range finders, binoculars, yeah, all that stuff, right? So visit vortexoptics.com. And the best part about this whole thing is their customer service and, and the warranty that they offer with every one of their optics. And that is if you break it, no matter what, you send it back to them and they will try to fix it. If they cannot fix it, They will send you a replacement. I've had to take advantage of this uh, warranty two different times on a pair of binoculars. I'm very hard on my equipment. I beat the shit out of it. 
especially optics. They hang from my chest. They get the blunt of everything. And uh, I had a seal break. I think I dropped it out of my truck and it cracked the eyepiece, sent it in a week later, maybe a week and a half later, they sent it back fixed, right? And I, I don't mean just fixed. I mean, I had some labels ripped off of it just through wear and tear. They put the labels on it as well. We're talking the details here, folks. And that makes a good company customer service high quality product and uh, that warranty is top notch so if you want to find out more information about vortex optics visit vortexoptics.com three two one all right joining me today mr dylan dowson what's up man How's it going? Um, yeah, yeah, things are good up here in Montana. Good deal, good deal. Yeah, uh, the sun is now shining, but I woke up this morning with about an inch of snow on the ground. I think it's since it's since <laughs> melted, but man, this April's been crazy. Yeah, no, it really has been, and uh, we woke up today too to about an inch to two inches of snow. Um, it's been snowing in the the nights, and then when the sun sun comes out, it dries up pretty quick, but. Um, yeah, we actually just had our, our Montana turkey opener this past weekend and uh, woke up at four and woke up to another two inches of snow. So it was pretty <laughs> interesting. Chased some gobblers around in the snow. Now, I've never I've never killed a turkey in the snow. I, I have a feeling, though, that uh, up in Montana, depending on where you hunt, uh, every April you probably do at least one turkey hunt in the snow. Yeah, for sure. It, it, it's bound to happen sooner or later. It's usually not on opener. Um, but even in the, you know, May, sometimes we get some late snowstorms just depending on where you're at in elevation. Um, but yeah, it was, it was interesting. You know, I, I didn't have the snow camo with me and, uh, felt like we were sticking out like a sore thumb and camo, but it, it worked out well. Uh, me and my fiance were actually able to, uh, triple on three toms. So it, it worked out well, but yeah, it was it was an interesting morning for sure. What are the tag limits in Montana for turkey? Yeah, so Montana, uh, we we have quite a few turkey tags. You can get up to five, um, and how that works is you start off with a general turkey tag, so that one's pretty much good statewide, um, give or take a few places. And um, after that, we've got some regional tags. Okay. So we have like a region seven tag, for example, that you can purchase after your general. That's only good for the region seven. So that's like the, the Eastern Southeastern part of the state. We've got a region two, um, you know, so on and so forth. So you can get up to five, but you have to travel. And there are certain areas within Montana that you can only use the general tag on. Gotcha. So if you really yep. wanted to work hard, you could get five turkeys in one year. Yep. Correct. Man. And there's, you know, where I'm at right now in region seven, you know, you can fill your general tag and region seven tag. So you can, you know, harvest multiple birds in similar areas. Or if you're in like the central part of the state where there's not a, um, an additional tag, then you would just be, you know, using your general. So in order to, to do that and maximize your opportunities there, you would have to be a little bit strategic of, you know, where you're using the tags and so on and so forth. Gotcha. So, Triple. Who shot two then? Uh, my fiance did actually. Okay, so yep. break down that yeah. hunt for us real quick. Yeah, we we. Uh, I'm originally from Eastern Montana, and before I started working for Onyx, um, which is in Western Montana, you know, I 
was born and raised over here on the eastern side of the state. And uh, so we, we came home to visit and just kind of hang out. We're working remote, or I'm working remote anyways, um, with um, all this uh, coronavirus stuff going on. So, you know, we figured might as well head home for turkey opener and work remote from over there and went out and roosted some birds, got some permission from uh, a landowner who I knew from growing up over here. And uh, yeah, that the next morning woke up at about 4, 15, 4, 30 or so and um, realized that it snowed a bunch and was pretty cold. Um, but we decided to head out anyways and see what we could find since we roosted some birds the night before. And we got out there a little bit later than what I would have liked. And actually at first light, we had four jakes uh, pitched from the tree and walked right by us at about 15 yards. Um, and I kind of turned to my fiance over the shoulder and asked if, asked if she wanted to, you know, fill one of her tags with a jake because they, they were goblin and stuff, but we didn't have the decoys set up or anything. And she opted to hold out. And about an hour later, we moved in on a couple birds that were gobbling and set up the decoys and started calling. And I thought they were moving the other way, but in just about, you know, five, ten minutes or so, they gobbled. I could tell they were coming in. And next thing I know, there's three three long beards coming around the corner, and they saw the decoys and took off running. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they they got to about ten yards from us. Um, they actually kind of passed the decoys and were in between us and the decoys, and started to kind of peel off to the right a little bit. I don't know if they knew something was up, but uh, um, I kind of whispered, you know, go ahead, take him whenever you're ready. And I had I just had my shotgun laid kind of over my lap. Um, I wasn't really you know, expecting to, to harvest that morning. Our goal was definitely to get Cammie a, a turkey and notch one of her tags. And she shoots, and that bird kind of runs off a little bit. And then I pulled up, and I shot the second one. And then the third one kind of ran out and stopped at about 40 yards and stuck his head up, and, and she shot again. So, <laughs> yeah, the rest is history. That's funny, man. I, I always get a yeah. kick out of the, the second turkey who get shot when two come in and the second one's just like, what just happened? And they forget. It's almost yeah. like they forget that a shotgun just killed their friend and they just yeah. stick around. Well, now what, what just happened? I'm going to peck at his head for a little bit and then boom, this guy. And then the yeah. third bird, obviously there must be some genetic disorder if he sticks around too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now he, uh, he took off running, but then stopped, like I said, about 40 yards, which was actually better for her pattern anyways. I oh, feel like nice. they were pretty close the first time and stuck his head straight up and, yeah, down went that one. But we, uh, we've we actually now had two two doubles and then a triple. So each time, pretty much every time I go out with her, we end up doubling up or now tripling. So Wow, that's awesome. She's, uh, she's been a good luck charm. That's awesome. So what's the what's the turkey population like in Montana, or, or at least where you hunt? You know, in eastern Montana, it, it's pretty good. There's a lot of private lands. Um, what I've seen, though, is people are pretty open to allowing access for turkeys in the springtime. You know, areas where you might not even think to ask for, like, deer or antelope or something like that, a big game animal. People are pretty uh, pretty open to, to allowing, you know, that private access for turkeys. So it's not too difficult, but, um, you know, growing up over here, I was into turkey hunting, but we were, I would definitely consider us, you know, kind of big game hunters first. Um, we did turkey hunt, but it was kind of more of a social thing, you know, get out and find some sheds and 
and uh, see if we can find some turkeys. And now, you know, several years later, I'm definitely more into it now. Um, it's the perfect time to get out, you know, after winter you're cooped up and you're ready to get out. And it's just, it's a blast. So I've been doing more and more of it lately. And what I've been finding is, you know, the bird populations are super strong, um, especially in the Eastern side of the state, but even in the West too. Okay. And then, um, so there's a lot of tags that are offered for, for turkeys, uh, Merriam's, right? Yeah. You know, they are, and I don't, you know, I don't know the science behind this, but it seems, and I've heard a few people say, even refer to them as like kind of a mutt bird, you know, like a mixture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, especially Eastern Montana, definitely more Merriam's. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I've always wanted to kill. Uh, a Merriam. I know that uh, my uncle wants to take me out to Western Kansas. I know they got some of them in uh, Nebraska and South Dakota too, but I definitely want to get a different uh, subspecies or a species of a turkey under my belt, and uh, a Merriam would be awesome. Especially, and this is this is where we're going to start transferring into the main topic today. But uh, you know where they live, right? You know, up in the mountains, up in some bigger terrain. Now. Before we get into this high elevation turkey hunt that you went on a while ago, where are these birds roosting? Is this a river bottom type of uh, scenario where you're hunting them in eastern Montana? Yeah, so mostly in eastern Montana, it usually is a river bottom type scenario. Um, they're roosting in big cot- cottonwoods. Um, our particular hunt, you know, that, that triple we just got, it was actually up in a little bit more of a break breaky country kind of like a mule deer type terrain um with draws and breaks but there's there's like i said it was a private spot up there and they do some egg work and there's just kind of a perfect little like creek bottom with cottonwoods and uh they were roosting up there and i mean they were pretty spread out they you know we watched them pitch up um into the trees the night before and they were very spread out it didn't really seem like they had a roost tree or you know I, I would expect them to roost that entire brick bottom and not really go back to the same spot. Right. Just because there's so many roosted roosting opportunities, right? Yeah, okay. exactly. Gotcha. All right. So you went on a little bit of a, a an adventure type turkey hunt. Was this last year? Yeah. Yep. It was uh, last spring. Last spring. Okay. So break down, break down this, uh, this hunt for us, where it was at, what the whole uh, purpose of this hunt was, the story behind it and whatnot. Yeah. So kind of a backstory, um, I think I mentioned, but I work for Onyx. Um, so we, we provide like a mapping application, you know, turn smartphones into a handheld GPS unit where it'll show um, you know, all the public lands, the private lands, the game management units, all sort of different information. And Onyx has been, um, you know, a sponsor and a partner with the NWTF for several years. Um, you know, Onyx is a little over 10 years old as a company. And I, I believe that we were with, you know, partnership with NWTF, you know, basically from the first year. So um, in, in doing so, NWTF had this really cool opportunity last year called Beyond the Strut. And essentially what that was is um, they had this idea, and actually Jason Tarwater there had this idea to kind of go around to the Western states and highlight different access projects and just different 
projects that the NWTF is doing to help enhance this this country for turkey population and all wildlife. And so his idea was to travel around to several different Western states, have somebody video those hunts, and not only show the hunts in those areas, but those projects that NWTF is doing with boots on the ground. So, um, you know, as ONX being a sponsor and a partnership of NWTF, we were asked if we wanted to go participate in one of those. And uh, I ended up going to New Mexico with them for that one. Nice. New Mexico. Uh, what's, uh, what was the terrain like where you hunted in New Mexico, similar to Montana? Um, I would say definitely similar to Western Montana. Um, so Western Montana, where Onyx is, is located in Missoula, you know, we're, we're about 30 to 3,400 feet in elevation there. But we're kind of down in a valley, and there's, you know, mountain ranges all around us. So, you know, just right outside town, you can get up probably between seven, maybe 8,000 feet, you know. Um, you know, that might be a little high, a little bit less in elevation than that. But, you know, there's, it is pretty mountainous and, uh, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I would say New Mexico was, was pretty similar. Okay. So, but... You know, you were talking about the elevation, but so 3,000-ish feet in Montana, but this this hunt was about 5,000 feet higher, right? Yeah, yep. So we actually, you know, and before we got down there, I I looked um, on the map and started scouting out some areas, and, you know, I had some phone calls with Jason of, hey, we're going to meet up here and try and go set up camp somewhere up in this area, so on and so forth. And, you know, looking at that, I realized we were at, like, 8,800 feet, close to 9,000 feet in elevation. So that was definitely a first for me to even think about hunting turkeys that high in elevation. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, you know, it was a typical spring it kind of at, at that elevation, you know, we were talking about snow here and we uh, later on in that hunt um, ended up getting dumped on with a snowstorm. So it's always, it's always interesting to hunt new, new terrain, new elevation, and just, especially with a new species. Yeah. So what time of year was this hunt? Um, I believe it was late April, maybe the first part of May. Okay. All right. And was this kind of a, a, a DIY backcountry hunt or did you guys, uh, hunt out of a hotel or, uh, a cabin or what was the, what were the logistics there? Yeah, I, I would definitely say a DIY. You know, we were sleeping in tents um, up on public land. And, um, yeah, you know, we pretty much had all the public land up there. There was no private. We had to really navigate around. So it was all public land, DIY, sleeping out of tents. Awesome. Uh, so, obviously, I'm familiar with you know, some tent hunting, like this last year, we did some tent hunting in South Dakota, you know, hike in, set up camp, go do our, our mule deer thing. But are there any different logistics that one needs to be thinking about or worried about when it comes to a spring hunt, not a fall hunt, but a spring hunt for turkeys at that elevation? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was kind of a, a first for me. Um, you know, I've done some, some tent hunts like bear hunting, but usually in Montana, you know, I'm, I'm staying at my home and then traveling for turkey hunting in the, you know, kind of during the day. So it was kind of new for me, but one thing, you know, we found for sure is the, just the weather changes. 
you know, springtime in Montana is very similar to what we found down there in New Mexico at that higher elevation. It's just so unpredictable. You know, one day it can be 85 and sunny and you, you'll wish that you had sunscreen. And then the next morning you're waking up to 25 degrees and, you know, six inches of snow. So I would say, you know, definitely rain gear to keep dry was, was crucial because once it snowed, that snow was super wet and super heavy and, without good rain gear and stuff like we simply probably wouldn't have been able to go out and sit and call all day because we would have just been soaking wet and it was just too cold um so i would say just you know planning for the unexpected weather wise for sure okay uh now as you're did you drive down there or fly down there so i flew down there and actually flew into flagstaff arizona um and jason and another gentleman who was filming from Muddy Shutter Media um, picked me up along the way. So they were coming from California from their last turkey hunt over there. And so I flew into Flagstaff, and then they picked me up. And I think we had about a four-and-a-half-hour drive or so um, to where we were hunting in New Mexico. Gotcha. Was this an over-the-counter tag, or did you have to apply for it? Nope, all over-the-counter. So basically when they picked me up, and we arrived in New Mexico. We went to a local Walmart and uh, walked in. I was able to buy my tags right then and there. It was super easy. Um, you know, I don't do a lot of out-of-state hunting, but, you know, so it, I wasn't sure. Some states are pretty difficult. Some states you have to apply, obviously. Um, but walked in with my ID and a credit card and bought two tags. It was pretty cheap, too. I think, you know, somewhere around 80 bucks or so. Definitely affordable. For how many tags? Uh, two. Oh, so so a non-resident can go in and get two tags over the counter. Yep, and I believe you know that probably is subject to the units, but the the specific area that we were hunting, um, you know, I could I could purchase two tags for that area. Okay, cool, man. That's awesome. Because uh, yeah. I don't know, like Iowa, where I live, is a one bird state. Period. Like we only get one bird, uh, and come to think of it the i feel like the turkey population in iowa is low these days uh, I'm, I'm not really sure what's what's going on i've had some conversations with uh, the dnr about all this and hypotheticals and whatnot but uh i feel like the turkey numbers in iowa are down compared to previous years once you got or going into this hunt before you even stepped foot out into the mountains where you start to we're starting to chase these birds what did you hear from people on what to expect on this hunt? You know, we actually heard a few people at Walmart um, and just a few locals kind of heard the, like, good luck. Um, not, like, doubting, but, you know, the, the bird numbers weren't incredibly high in this area, and I think that's a big reason why NWTF is focusing on that area you know, for boots on the ground and helping these projects um, to help improve that habitat and obviously the population. Um, but yeah, we, we did hear a, a few kind of like snickering good lucks. <laughs> right. Okay. So now you mentioned this, uh, you know, you're, you're out there with Onyx, you're out there um, with uh, the National Wild Turkey Federation. Talk to us about this project that the NWTF was doing out there to help recruit turkey yeah so this uh that 
particular stewardship project, NWTF had been working with the Forest Service for several years. Um, I don't want to say because I'll probably misspeak on like timelines and durations, but I know it was one of their longest standing stewardship projects. And uh, I mean, where I come from in Montana, like our forests are, you know, our public land forests are somewhat overgrown you know it, it's not super clean and neat and there's areas that I feel like you know we could work on um, going down there and seeing that forest and all of the work that they are doing whether it be burning different areas strategically or um, thinning some areas you know there was a, an active logging unit up there right next to where we had camped and then right next to where I actually a um, little foreshadowing not to tag but um, you know, it, it's just, it was incredible to see firsthand, like what those efforts do to the forest and how clean and just how, um, just how nice that forest was. And so it was, uh, it was really kind of a, an eye opener for sure for me, but yeah, essentially NWTF, you know, had that stewardship project with, um, the forestry and in doing so they were able to co-work on these projects together and really with nwtf funding and so on and so forth just make stuff happen a lot more quickly that's cool man that's cool that uh they take a step outside of the norm right because you talk to any turkey hunter right and you say what state if you could go state hunt any state what state would you want to be in you know i I have this suspicion this suspicion that not a lot of people are going to say New Mexico. So it's cool that, you know, the NWTF said this is a state that needs help too, right? In, in up in the mountains where these turkeys live, you know, there, there's possibly a decline or their habitats help, need some help. This is where we're going to do the project. I think that's super cool, man. Same. And you know, from, from like a hunting standpoint, you know, I, obviously it's great to go out where there's a ton of birds, right? And like this past weekend, you know, when we, um, build three tags on opening morning, like it's always great to, you know, take advantage of those opportunities when they arise and there's, there's quite a few birds around, but there's just something about like hunting that area down there in New Mexico with there being, you know, not not a giant population we knew it wasn't going to be super easy um that like leaving that hunt it just it was it was a really cool experience awesome so any other cool details i i know i want to get the guy um one of the guys from the uh, nwtf on the podcast to talk about this project in a little bit more detail but in, until then do you have any more interesting facts or information to share with us about that project yeah, I definitely, I think getting Jason on for sure would help, um, you know, dive dive into it deep. But one of the things I found really just interesting was, you know, we, as I said, we, <clears throat> excuse me, where we camped up there, they were actively logging. And so not only did we go to that, that site and interview and talk with the people who are boots on the ground logging that area, we followed a truck down, you know, with those logs on it to the mill, the local mill down there and went through the mill and got to tour the whole thing and, and kind of see start to finish, you know, not only is NWTF helping that area, um, reclaiming that, that area, improving wildlife habitat, but we got to see like the, the jobs that were firsthand impacted from that. 
and talk to the owners of the mill and, and see all the, the different people working at the mill. And, you know, it, it's just, it was a, a super cool experience to see that kind of start to finish and like all the added benefits that you don't really think about firsthand. Yeah, man, that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, so it's like a, a full circle, right? Just because it's conf- conservation doesn't mean, cause I think there's a stereotype when people hear the word conservation, they think that, um, something we're helping something but on the back end we are taking something away as well like you know i think i think there's a misconception and this is just my personal opinion that sometimes uh conservation means i don't know maybe maybe even taking a job away from somebody or maybe taking a hunting area away for somebody but i think and this is a perfect example of where it's actually, you know, this project through the state or through the federal government is actually creating jobs or, you know, jobs for a little bit, money for a little bit, and then creating something good on the back end as well, which is more habitat for wild turkeys. For sure. And, you know, those, the owners of that mill there, there were two brothers and it was a family generation mill. And they, you know, they said straight up, like without the NWTF and that stewardship project and agreement, they would not be in business. Like they flat out said, you know, that is, has what has kept us in business. So it, yeah, like you said, I mean, there's, there's a lot of added benefits that a lot of the times people, and I'll be the first one to admit without me going there and seeing that, you know, it, it would be difficult to fully understand. Yeah. So how many acres in total did this project encompass? You know, I'm not 100% sure on that one. I do know that we drove around and it, a lot, <laughs> right. uh, quite, a, quite a bit of country. Um, I, I'd be guessing if I threw out an acreage, but I, I think Jason or somebody would probably have those numbers. Over 1,000 acres? I, I would say so. Yeah, sure. okay. All right. Well, that gives us some kind of yeah. scope. All right, so um, the – they cut down some trees. They take it to a, a mill. The mill um, creates some jobs, makes some money. Uh, we got some habitat back for these wild turkeys. You're going up there, and you start hunting them. Talk to us about the, uh, I guess, the quote-unquote climb up to where you started to hunt. For sure. So, you know, I, I believe that the town was somewhere around 5,000 feet or so. So, I mean, there was literally a climb you know, up into the mountain range that we were hunting and kind of leaving town. Um, it, it was kind of a, a deserty feel. Um, we were driving along on a public road, obviously, but like a, a washed out creek bottom with kind of a, a deserty feel. There was a few um, trees intermixed, but pretty open. And then this, as soon as we started really climbing, you know, we got into some more vegetation. There was a lot more different types of trees and uh, a lot more, elevation gained quickly so it went from a gradual steepness to you know we're we're definitely in the mountains now um and we drove up this road um and actually found on the map prior kind of a a camping spot where it's public land but um you know just kind of a designated camp area with i think there were some picnic benches and stuff there so uh we drove up and it was i think just a little bit before dark if I remember right, we, we set up our tent and then had about an hour to look around and 
um, you know, went and scouted from there, really just trying to locate birds. And, you know, none of us had ever hunted this area. So we, we did rely on the maps quite a bit. We all saved, you know, the offline maps on, on X before we got up there. And we were able to still use those when we were up there without cell service. Um, so we, we had a few spots marked, a few waypoints marked on the maps of areas we wanted to go and just call and see what we could see. And, uh, you know, we, we checked off, I think, three or four different areas, and it was pretty much dark. And we were driving back to the camp and pulled over um, probably, I'd say about a quarter mile, maybe half mile from camp before we got back and uh, called one more time to try and locate a bird. And we, we did locate one. We heard a gobble. It was very, very far off, but kind of down a drainage and then up the other side. And so we, we kind of had a general direction of where he was and it was being, it was pretty dark. We figured he was going to roost up there. So that's kind of what we set our sights on for the morning, marked a waypoint for where we thought he was when we heard him. And then, uh, yeah, I went back to camp. Cool, man. So pretty much day one was just kind of a scouting mission, right? Yep. All right. Yep. So, and at this point you were about 8,500 feet. Or were you higher than that? Yep. No, I think we were. I think we were camped at eighty eight hundred. Eighty eight hundred. Okay. So, <laughs> were you feeling the the altitude at that point, or the elevation at that point? You know, not really. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm used to hunting big game. I'm used to elk hunting around five to seven thousand usually. So I I wasn't then, but I'll tell you later on that week when we started putting on more boot miles and, and hiking. You know, it's, it's not necessarily like a shortness of breath. It's just for me personally, it was, you know, we would walk three or four miles and I would just feel tired. And, you know, usually it's like, yeah, you know, you're going to be tired, but I feel like I was more tired more quickly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense, man. That's the same kind of feeling that I have when, you know, this year we're at Colorado at like 11, six or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I'm from Iowa, right? I'm damn near at sea level. So then I just go straight up without, you know, 11,000 feet. And, uh, you know, day one was awesome. I felt like a king because I'd, I'd been training. I did, you know, did my training, did my workouts, felt good. And then day two, it's just like, oh man, day one was kind of a fluke. I burnt all my energy and now it's to that. Now is when the training comes in, right? It's just that elevation you you can't beat it man you just can't no and you can train all you want like you said but until you're you know it it's tough like obviously training is going to help a a ton and if you didn't train before going into that you would have been far far worse off but um it's it's hard to replicate the real deal um the highest i've ever hiked or been was about that same 11.5 or so and that took a toll on me it you know i don't know if i was started to get altitude sickness but i was kind of delirious at first and just it it was strange (laughs) yeah yeah so day one or the scouting day kind of comes to the end you wake up the next morning what was uh what was it like did you did you eat a breakfast was it get and go or what was it like you know it's pretty pretty much get and go and that's one thing about um tent hunting hunting out of a tent is for me personally it's like you know i i like drinking coffee but i can make that in the pickup on the way or quickly in a jet well when i wake up but 
you know, it's cold in the morning, so there's not a whole lot of, of uh, wasted time. It's kind of like get up, throw your clothes on, throw your layers on, and let's make something happen because I'm going to get cold sitting here. <laughs> so yeah. um, I remember we, we got up and made some quick coffee and hopped in the pickup and uh, drove up to where we, you know, were probably, oh, I'd say half mile from where we heard that bird or so. Um, and that was the only bird that we had heard or the only lead that we had from scouting the day prior. So, you know, we, we kind of put all the eggs in that basket and started hiking well before daylight, probably 45 minutes to an hour, I'd say, before daylight, just using the using the app and the terrain, using the topo and just kind of where we thought that bird was when we heard him the night before. And we got in there probably, I'd say, at least half an hour before you know, legal shooting light and set up the decoys where we, where we thought, you know, we didn't want to push it too much. Right. Because this was just the first morning of, um, a five day hunt. So we didn't want to push it too much and spook this bird out. Um, so we wanted to stick back a little bit. So we, we got to a good spot and, you know, weren't using headlamps or anything, just kind of let our eyes adjust to the, the darkness. And it wasn't pitch black. We could at least kind of see where we were headed, set up the decoys, and then um, I sat down, and they were filming this one. So the camera guy was probably about 8 to 10 yards to my left because the, the timber was pretty open. There wasn't, like, enough vegetation that would cover both, you know, him and I together. So I kind of picked a tree. He picked a tree. And then Jason, who was calling, um, went back up behind me probably 30, 40 yards or so. And uh, – so we're just sitting there, you know, and hadn't heard the bird at all at this point. And I think right about as we were sitting down, um, you know, the, the bird gobbled the first time and he was clearly still still in the tree. And when he gobbled, we all kind of like looked at each other and we were a lot closer than what we had thought we were going to be from him. So, um, you know, I don't know how far I would guessing say, you know, 60 yards maybe um so we we actually played it perfectly not really knowing exactly where he was um but when he gobbled we realized you know we were right in the zone for sure so did you uh, did you hear any other gobbles at that point or was it just the one bird just the one bird no responses we hadn't called yet but yeah just the one bird okay and uh in the meantime I, i pulled up my phone just to double check shooting regulation times and then you know, I had my watch there. So I had the time set and I can't remember exactly, you know, I can't remember the time exactly. Um, but probably about eight to 10 minutes before legal shooting light, we could kind of hear some, some rustling. And, uh, I heard his wings, like you pitched down. And so I'm looking out in front and it's, you know, I'm looking at the decoys at about 20 yards and it's like dark, dark. <laughs> um, but this, you know, it's getting lighter by the second. It's one, it's like that time in the morning where it's pitch black one second. And then you look around two minutes later and it's like, Oh, okay. You know, everything's coming to life. And so I'm looking and it's pretty dark. And I look at my watch and, you know, like I said, I think we were probably five, six minutes at that time until legal shooting light. And, uh, we knew one of two things, like he completely shut up when he got to the ground. He didn't gobble one more time before that he probably gobbled four or five times on the roost yeah um jason called a few times just just real soft and kind of shut up himself 
And so when, when he pitched down and he didn't respond to a call or gobble, we knew, okay, either he's going dead away from us or he's on a string coming right to us. I was looking at my watch, um, you know, making sure that we were legal with, with legal shooting light and whatnot. And that was about the time when I saw him come from like left to right. He was walking at about 30 yards or so. And the decoys were like pretty much right in line for me and him, but it, it didn't even seem like he paid any attention to them. I don't know if he didn't see them, which would be kind of strange for me. I, he definitely shouldn't have seen the decoys, but he just didn't act like he did at all whatsoever. So, um, you know, I looked at my watch and we were like two or three minutes past legal shooting light at that point. So I knew we were, we were good to go. Um, if he did come in and, you know, give an opportunity, but the way that he was going, it's almost like he was going directly to like where Jason was calling from. And, uh, so it made me a little bit nervous cause he started skirting up to the right and he got to probably 30, 25 yards or so. And I knew the angle he was, I, we probably weren't going to get it on camera just because I was sitting in the middle of like the camera and where the bird was going to come out. Um, but I remembered I had two tags, so I wanted to take advantage of the, the opportunity if it arose. And uh, <clears throat> so the bird came up and kind of half strutted, um, but I could tell it was a long beard and he got to about 25 yards and stuck his head up and uh, uh, shotgun rang out and, you know, turkey <laughs> dropped right there. So it was that, that first morning was, was pretty quick, you know, in the sense that we were five to eight minutes probably past legal shooting light and I had notched my first tag already. And did you get it and you did get it on camera? No, he did no. not actually. Gotcha. Uh, and I, I figured he wouldn't and I, you know, I'm not used to hunting with a camera a lot. So, you know, I, I did think about that, but having two tags and um, really, I mean, especially this hunt, like the story is for like the stewardship and the conservation project. And it's just kind of a bonus that we get to hunt that area. So um, yeah, it didn't come into account too much, but no, he unfortunately wasn't able to get the shot on camera. No worries, dude. I, that's all, that's all secondary. If you ask me now, let me, what, what I want to know is what was the terrain like at this, 9,000 foot mark, right? I mean, was it a yep. steep incline that these guys were walking on or was it kind of a meadow where it was a little bit more of a gradual? You know, there, there were a couple meadows up in the area and we didn't even really see any sign in the meadows nor any birds in the meadows, but where this was, we were in a saddle. Um, so it was to our left would have been a, a pretty steep drainage. Um, you know, we're talking probably five, 600 feet of elevation loss down there pretty quickly. And then we were in the saddle and then to the right, another steep drainage. So what I think that bird had did was come out of the bottom and, and roost up in that saddle. And, you know, obviously I, I don't know a lot about turkeys using saddles to, to travel, but, you know, if you find a good saddle, especially in elk country, you know, it's, it's going to be used because it's the easiest way for an elk or for an animal to get from point A to point B. Um, so I, I don't know if that was a, a typical roosting spot for him up there, but um, yeah, it was kind of in the middle of the saddle. I wouldn't say, you know, there was really no open terrain, but it wasn't super thick either with timber. You know, you could see 50, 60 yards out in front of you through the trees for sure. 
Okay. And uh, was it kind of like dark timber or was it wide open? Like when I was in Colorado, all, man, we were just over deadfall all the time. Was this, say, a deadfall type wooded area or was it a little bit more open? It was more open. And really, again, I attribute that back to like the burns and the clearing out that they are doing with that project specifically, because like you said, I mean, in Montana, it's not unheard of to hike a quarter mile on down logs. Like there's, there's areas of timber where it's super thick and nasty. And in order to get a shot on a Turkey, it would have to basically jump in your lap. Yeah. Um, but this was, was definitely more open. Like there was, you know, there was definitely trees. Um, so for example, when that, that bird crossed in front of me at like 30 yards. Um, the way I was positioned and where he was going, there's no way I would have been able to swing to my right and get a shot. But I waited for him to go behind a cl little cluster of trees and then swung to the right to get ready for him. So, you know, there was cover, but it was, it was pretty open on, on the ground. Yeah. How excited were you when you actually pulled the trigger and dropped him? Super excited. Um, you know, as I said in the beginning, I, grew up kind of hunting turkeys but not very you know not as often as I do now and honestly I think last year that hunt specifically is what drove me to get back into it more like as soon as I got back from that hunt in Montana you know I went out and, and hunted quite a bit last year and then this season obviously was just kicking off but it was it was super exciting and I think for me personally it was the added challenge of being you know, that high of elevation and an area I've never hunted before. Um, and it was the whole, just the whole experience, like out there camping. It's not like we, you know, slept in our, our house and then went down to a spot and, and so on and so forth. So it just, the whole trip was, was pretty cool and kind of got me, got the fire lit again for turkey hunting more, more so than it was before. That's cool, man. That's so cool. But you had another tag in your pocket, right? Yeah. Yeah, I did. So that morning you know we we kind of hung around and let it get light and take took some photos and just kind of took it all in um you know jason was was laughing at how everything worked out so perfectly um once we were taking photos we actually heard the equipment in the background fire up to to work on that logging unit just right next next to where we were so it was just kind of like a a humbling experience for him and for everybody just to like see it full circle you know the plan work out to perfection so you know, that day we, we kind of took it easy um, for the morning and, and took some photos and stuff. And um, for the video-wise, we did go back into town, and and that's when we talked to the folks at the mill and so on and so forth there. Um, but that afternoon, that evening, we did get back out and tried to locate a bird, kind of more, more of like a scouting, let's cover some country and figure out where some more birds are. Um, but, yeah, I mean – it was tough after that day. You know, we, we had that bird, everything come came together perfectly within the first 10 minutes of legal shooting light on the first morning. And we were kind of thinking, Oh, you know, it, you know, it's not going to be too difficult to try and get on another bird for the second tag. We've got four more days. And uh, that proved to be complete the opposite. It was, it was challenging. <laughs> so over that next uh, four day period, I mean, did you see any more turkeys? Did you locate any sign? Did you hear any gobbles? Yeah, so no no second tag was filled, first and foremost. But um, we, you know, a couple days later, we still hadn't seen or heard another turkey. 
we had seen a few tracks in the roads um, and kind of highlighted those areas and tried to go through and figure out, you know, were they just not gobbling? Were they around? Had they moved out? What, what was going on? Um, and I think on like the fourth day or so, we, we went into this area where we found a, a track the night before and got in there pretty early and actually did hear a bird. It was super far off, but we at least had heard another bird and we were moving in there pretty close to where we were thinking about maybe setting up and, and calling. And all of a sudden we heard a shotgun go off up ahead of us, probably you know, <laughs> four or five hundred yards and like, Oh, there goes that bird. So, um, you know, that hunter was successful, which was super cool, but we kind of backed out of there and, and never heard another turkey. <laughs> okay. And, and was this April or May that you went and did this? Um, like I said, I, I would have to look back to see for sure, but I'm pretty sure it was, um, like early May, early May. Okay. So, yeah. uh, f- from what you learned from that area, was that past the, the prime or right at the prime? Cause in Iowa, May, everything starts to shut down and really wind down mid April. Like most places is probably the, the quote unquote Turkey rut. Yeah. No, and, and from some of, the, like, the locals, you know, we did hear it was kind of toward the tail end of things for sure. So that that definitely could have played a, a key role into our, our lack of finding more birds or maybe they were losing elevation and weren't as interested anymore, you know, with the, the rut activity. So that very well likely could have played a, a key role into that. But, um, yeah, to answer your question, we did hear that it was kind of more toward the end of it. Gotcha. So talk about this experience, man. What did you learn? What did you like? Is this something you can see yourself doing again? For sure. I think for me, you know, one of the biggest things, biggest takeaways for me was seeing the the conservation efforts firsthand. You know, you can hear about them all you want. And it's, you know, watching like this video, and that's really why this video series happened is to try and spread the word and like take the experiences like I was able to see firsthand on the ground and have viewers watch the films and get educated about the conservation efforts um, and really just, just help spread that message. But for me to see it firsthand was, was an eye opener for sure. And just like we talked about earlier, you know, all the jobs that, that came from this and all the added benefits that you don't think of firsthand. Um, so that was, was definitely the, the key part of this trip for me. And the second one was really just hunting turkeys out of state. Um, it's not something I've really thought of doing before, especially with Montana being such like an opportunistic state. You know, you can travel within the state and hunt several different birds. Um, so it's not something I've ever thought about. But really after this hunt, it was like not so much about just going and filling another turkey tag in another state. It's like a good opportunity to go hunt new areas and experience something different you know it wasn't just notching a tag in new mexico it was like hunting new mexico for the very first time so it was super cool yeah yeah i'm uh i'm excited i think next year i'll be turning or well november of this year i turned 40 and i think i'm gonna go on my very first out of state turkey hunt uh, probably out west somewhere i want to i want to run into some merriams and whether that is in New Mexico or Colorado or 
Montana or Wyoming or wherever, or even Nebraska, South Dakota, or Kansas, uh, my goal is to connect with a Merriam, uh, in, in 2021, spring of 2021. So, uh, I, and the reason I reached out to you in the first place is I was thinking about that. And then I saw your story and I'm like, dude, let's just get this guy on and talk about it because I think it would be so cool to run into, um, a flock of turkeys at about 9,000 feet, man. Yeah, no, it, it was a super, super cool experience. And, um, you know, Merriam's are, are definitely a, a fun bird to call in. And it was the whole, the whole experience was just was really cool. Awesome, man. Well, uh, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and chat with us, man. Uh, thanks for, uh, it's, uh, so are you done turkey hunting this year already? Nope, I still have a general tag, and then um, when we we head back over to Western Montana, you know, both me and my fiance will probably pick up, you know, a Region Two tag for over there. So, no, um, you know, we had a great opening morning, and I haven't been out since, but I'm starting to get the itch again, and uh, definitely will be out, and hopefully we'll call in some more turkeys before season's over, and then um, today is actually our our spring bear opener for Montana, so. You know, I usually hit turkeys pretty hard for the first few weeks and uh, see how things go and then kind of transition more into the bear side of things. So we'll see. All right, man. Well, good luck on the bear and the turkey and the springtime activities, man. Thanks again for hopping on. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. And there you have it. Huge shout out to Dylan for taking time out of his day. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to download and listen. If you have not subscribed to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, you can do that. Go to iTunes, search Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, and guess what? It's going to pop up, and all you have to do is subscribe to it, and you get these episodes directly to your phone or mobile device leave a comment let let everybody know what you think of it uh, unless it's bashing me <laughs> don't uh don't bash me too hard but a huge shout out to all of you guys man really appreciate this huge shout out to all the partners of the podcast vortex optics the average conservationist lone wolf portable tree stands wasp broadheads and last but not least ozonic scent elimination units man please go out and support the companies that support this podcast it all comes full circle man so um yeah do that if you haven't already find a conservation effort to get behind in 2020 and support it with time with energy with serious thought with money right it doesn't have to be a lot of money just a little bit right just whatever you can afford time whatever you can afford to give that is what makes conservation the conservation world go around and we need to give back in 2020 have a good day and we'll talk to you next time